throughout the Old Testament, there's a little bit of Jesus all over the place in the Old Testament. And this morning, uh, we are continuing uh, to look at some of these prophecies, and we come to Psalm 22. And you see, Psalm 22 is quite interesting, and Psalm 22 has actually caused a lot of conflict between commentators and, and biblical scholars because it's really quite fascinating. You see, David here at his core is describing the cross. He's describing crucifixion. This is interesting because at this time, the cross isn't even a thing. The cross won't even be a method of punishment or death until uh, much, much later down the road. But yet David is talking about it like it's common. And, and it's most likely here we see David using some poetic imagery to describe his suffering, but nothing like this ever happened to David. No, you see, David didn't die a, a death of crucifixion. He died a death of old age. And yet he's going into these, uh, this description of suffering with such detail for something that never happened to him. And so, yes, he could be using poetic imagery, but Acts chapter 2, verse 30, Peter reminds us in his sermon on the day of Pentecost that David was a prophet. And so what we see here this morning is most likely David prophesying about something that we will see much, much later down the road. And he'll describe this horrible event, this horrible tragedy that will take place. And this morning as we look through Psalm 22 and we walk through David's description of this suffering and, and we look at that compared to Jesus Christ and we see how these things line up, we realize that we serve a God who understands. And so we're going to start in Psalm 22 and we're going to start in the first two verses. And this is what it says. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? This passage starts with lament. It doesn't start off in a happy mood. It doesn't start off with a cheerful note. No, it starts right off with this cry of lament, this, this cry out to God. God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you gone so far from me? I'm crying out to you. I'm yelling for you, and yet you seem to be so far away. David feels like in the midst of his suffering, God has turned his back on him. He's turned away from him. He doesn't hear his prayers. He doesn't hear his cries of anguish. He feels like God is not listening to him. Interesting. He's describing his suffering in this way when we know that Jesus will say the same thing. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, and Mark 15, 34, they describe this event in the exact same way, pretty much minus a couple of different words. And they say this, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's on the cross, he's crying out for the Father, 
wondering, God, why have you turned away from me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why are you not helping me in this moment? I'm crying out for you, and you've turned your face away from me. And you know, people have said, man, in this moment on this cross, Jesus, it appears that his faith is lacking. Why is he crying out in this anguish? And you know, he knew the plan. Why now is his faith lacking? But that's not what's going on here. I think MacArthur says it well when he says, this is a cry of disorientation because Jesus Christ was so used to God's familiar protective presence. He was so used to the fact that the Father was there and now all of a sudden the Father's presence on the cross is withdrawn and in the disorientation he cries out as the enemy closes in and the eternally sinless one bears all the sins of all of history. He's crying out on the cross, God, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And yet God couldn't look at his son covered in sin. God couldn't look face to face at all the sins that his son was covered in on this cross. And at the same time, he couldn't pull him off the cross. The work needed to be done. It had to be finished. And so in this moment, we see Christ crying out, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you turned from me? Verses 3 through 5, we see this. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. See, David here is stating his confidence that even in the midst of his suffering, even when he feels like he is not there, like God has not listening to him, like God is not you know, hearing what he's crying out, David has confidence that God does hear his prayers. He has confidence because he knows that God is the Holy One that the nation of Israel has been praising and will continue to praise. He sits on the throne, and when David's ancestors have cried out for help, he has delivered him, have delivered them. He delights in his people, and yet so often I hear people say that God is just this moral monster. Read through the Old Testament. God is just this moral monster. But what I see is a God who over and over and over again saves his people. And David understood this, and David knew this. He knew that his ancestors had cried out and they had helped him. And for Jesus, you understand that Jesus understood what the cross represented. But that doesn't mean he necessarily wanted that to happen. I think we see the humility in Jesus here. The, 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 and when I say humility, I mean his, his humanity. Matthew 26, 39, in the garden, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see humanity here in Jesus, but we also see that in this moment, he knows that this is a part of the plan. He knows that God has not forsaken him. He knows that God has not turned away from him completely. He knows that this is the plan. He doesn't have to like it, but he understands the plan. And we see in verses 6 through 8, But I am a worm 
and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Next, we see David begin to talk about how he feels like he is being mocked and ridiculed by his enemies. Everywhere he looks, his enemies are there, mocking him, ridiculing him, putting him down, beating him down. He says he's like a worm. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. He describes himself as a worm, and that's important because a worm would be worthless, insignificant, right? Compared to other creatures, a worm can't do much. They're, they're not significant. They're, they're not important. But there's something interesting about this wording that David uses here. You see, the Hebrew word for the worm, or the Hebrew word for worm is toloth. The same word is used in Isaiah 118, and it means crimson. Then, in Exodus 25.4, the same word is used, and it's translated as scarlet. Why is this important? Why is this uh, phrasing here important? Well, I have a picture up here of some worms. Looks wonderful, right? Like, you know, this worm is an interesting worm. This worm is called the scarlet worm. And the thing that makes the scarlet worm so interesting is that the scarlet worm has a thick red fluid in its body. And this thick red fluid was important because they would take this thick red fluid that is in this worm and they would use this fluid to make dyes. And so, this is scarlet, it would be red dyes that would be used to make this. And the thing that is important to know about these worms in order to make these dyes, these worms would be crushed. And that flu would be, would be used, that red dye would be used to cover garments. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, who was crushed, his blood used to cover our sins. And so when you read, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised, no, this worm had a lot more importance than what you might think. And yet, he's mocked. David is being mocked by his enemies, and we see this play out in the life of Jesus, don't we? On the cross, before the cross, Matthew 27, 29 through 30, it says, And then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They, or then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. You know, we were talking about the worm. Something interesting to think, too, we also see in the Gospels. What's the color of the robe that they put around him. It's red, scarlet. But anyway, then we see in Matthew 27, 39 through 40, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Then David here quotes this, it says, 
let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. This plays out in Matthew 27, 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. David is mocked. Jesus is mocked. He's insulted on the cross, before the cross. Then we go to verses 9 and 10. It says, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. You see, David tells us here where he puts his trust. The fact that he knows that even when everything is going on around him, he puts his trust in God. This is how he was brought up. As long as he can remember, he has been taught to trust in God. And we see this play out in the life of Jesus in the midst of being on the cross, in the midst of feeling alone in this moment. We know that he trusted God. If you read and if you recall from last week in John 17, verse 24, when he prays for us while he's praying to his Father, what does he pray for? He wants us to be where he is going. He knows what's going to take place. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's waiting for him at the end of the suffering. And he trusted the Father. From the beginning, he was with the Father. He lived life with the Father. He came to earth, and he was still one with the Father. And he knows that he will go back and be with the Father. He trusted the Father. Then we go into verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. And then in verse 12 through 13, he says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan, and circle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Now, David is likening his enemies to two different animals that add up to strength and savagery. The bulls of Bashan. Who are, what are the bulls of Bashan? Well, they're bulls from Bashan. But not only are they bulls from Bashan, they were very well-fed cattle from Bashan. Bashan had some of the best prairie land, and so these bulls ate well, and they were very strong bulls. But you see, here's the thing. There's some different views on what this means. What is David talking about when he mentions the bulls of Bashan? Some believe this means that there were actual bulls in the area around the cross and that this is a description of animals that Jesus sees while he's on the cross. I don't know if I take that view. But then they mention this. Some believe it to mean demonic forces demonic forces that were so strong around him in this moment on the cross because we know that the enemy is not just sitting by ignoring everything that's happening. No, we know that the enemy and his army is there seeing everything that is playing out on the cross. Some believe it's demonic forces. Some people to say it may be the strength of the people. At the cross, there would have been Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers would have been strong soldiers representing the strong nation of Rome. So it's possible that they're talking about the strength of the people. The strength of the people were pretty strong because they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they crucify him. The people had collective strength. It's possible that it's a mix of both. 
the strength of the people and the strength of the forces that were around him. And then he talks about lions, and we know about lions, how powerful they are, how savage they are. And you see, this wasn't an image that David neglected. No, David actually used this imagery of lions quite a bit. In Psalm 72, when talking about his enemies, he said, Or will they tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me? In Psalm 10, 9, again talking about the enemy, he's like a lion in cover. He lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. And there's many, many more. But he uses this imagery a lot. And if you think about it in the context of Jesus, they were savage. They wanted him dead and they made it known. What do they cry out while he's on the cross? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted this man crucified. They wanted him dead. And again, this could be a mix of describing the people and the demonic forces around them. But then we go into verses 14 and 15. And he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shed, pot shard, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And for David, you see, this represents his strength. His strength has been zapped. His strength is being poured out like water. He doesn't have much left. There's not much left in David after all of the, the things his enemies have been doing, the way they have cried out for his death, the way they have mocked him and insulted him, the way he has been experiencing all of this. He says he just doesn't have the strength. His strength, what little bit he has, is being poured out. And then he says his heart is melting like wax. And what this means is he's losing the courage to keep fighting, to resist the battle any longer. He can't make it. David is saying, I don't have much left in me. I'm drained. I'm drained. My heart, I don't have the courage to keep standing up anymore. I'm done. What does this have to do with Jesus? He's being poured out. It sounds a lot like blood loss, doesn't it? He's being drained, his blood, he's been whipped, he's been beaten severely, his bone ripped from his flesh, his body wide open, blood pouring out of him. His heart is like wax. Listen to what a doctor describes about the heart while you're on the cross. The difficulty surrounding or exhaling leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe, and at the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen due to the difficulty in exhaling causes damage to the tissues, and the capillaries begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. The result, or this results in a buildup of fluid around the heart, a pericardial infusion, and lungs, a plural infusion, the collapse in lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocate the victim. 
The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, which is a myocardial infarction, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely then would have died from a heart attack. His heart was like wax. And then we see David say, my mouth, it's dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He's describing dehydration. He's dehydrated. He's parched. He's been so stressed. He's been so worried. He doesn't have anything left in his body. And now, and now, as he is going through all of this, he's, he's dehydrated. He's, his mouth is dry. You see, here's the thing with Jesus. A loss of blood would cause dehydration. It would cause him to thirst. So he's on the cross. He's thirsty. And we see this play out in John chapter 19, 28 through 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. His heart doesn't have much left. He's lost blood. He's on the cross trying to push himself up to breathe. It's causing his heart to give out. His heart is like wax. And as he is being poured out all over the place, his blood is being poured out, he is thirsty and he fulfills it by asking for something to drink. But then we see in verses 16 through 18, it says, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All the bones, or all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. You see, dogs were seen as scavengers in David's day and in Jesus' day. They were seen as scavengers who were waiting to pick the bones clean. They would find these you know, carcasses and they would pick off the bones until there was nothing left. And yet we see these people, David's enemies, were like these dogs. They're trying to take everything he has from him. And then we see Jesus surrounded by people who want him dead. We've talked about that. And then he says, they pierce my hands and my feet. This is where it really appears that David is prophesying about one to come. And they pierce my hands and my feet. On that cross, his wrist would have been nailed. You often see pictures where it's the palm of the hand that's nailed to the cross. That wouldn't actually be what they would do because if somebody was trying to pull themselves up on the cross and the nail was in their palm, it would happen that they, the hand would rip and they would fall hit their face on the bottom of the cross. No, it was more likely it was through the wrist to keep their from our arms from being able to move. And they pierce my feet. And we see that this played out in the life of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples when he returns. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Here's the proof. Here's everything you need to see. 
And then David mentions that they divide up my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. And you might read that, you might think, why is a garment a big deal? Why is a garment a big deal? Well, Scripture actually tells us that garments, cloaks in this case, were very important. Listen to what Exodus 22 verses 26 or 27 say. It says, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Then, Deuteronomy 24, 12 through 13, it tells us, if the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset, so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and you will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. So for them, a garment was what they would sleep in. It was important to them. If they were sleeping on hard ground, they'd want something to sleep in that wasn't very hard, and so they would sleep in their garment. This would be something that was important to them. And yet, here we go again with Jesus at the cross in John chapter 19, 23 through 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. You see, for the Jew, this would have been embarrassing that they would take their garments. This would have been a mockery. This would have been a, a slap in the face for them to take their garments. But you see, to the Romans, their mindset was whenever somebody was executed, the executioner or the executioner's assistant, they would take whatever small items or clothes that were left from the person who was executed. So for the Jew, this was seen as a slap in the face, but for the Romans, they felt like because we were the ones who executed them, we get their stuff. And so we see this tragedy is playing out. And then in verses 19 through 21, But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. You see, it's almost like this is David's last like ditch effort. This is David's last cry of help from for God. Like, hey, please rescue me. Please save me from what is about to take place. Please come and save me from what is happening to me. Please help me. Please deliver me. And if this is all we read, then it would seem like, man, this just ends horribly. But then listen to verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. Man, what a, a tone shift here. Just the whole rest of Psalm 22, David is crying out. He, he's crying out that God isn't hearing him. He's talking about the mockery of his enemies. He's talking about the physical stuff his body is taking. He's tired. He's drained. He doesn't have much left. 
He's talking about how all of his enemies are around him. They will pierce his hands and feet. They will divide his clothes. Everything just sounds horrible. And then all of a sudden in verse 22, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. What is going on here? Something extraordinary happens. You see, David is crying out, help me, help me, help me. And if it seems like all is lost, something turns around here, something good happens, something extraordinary happens here. What is it? Resurrection happens here. Resurrection happens here. And we know what happens to Jesus. His, his body is lifeless. He, he hangs his head. It's finished. It's done. They pull him off the cross. They put him in the tomb. And it seems like all hope is lost. But guess what? Resurrection happens. And just as David cried out, rescue me, what does God do? He rescues his son from the grave. He rescues his son from death. He rescues his son and he raises him from the grave. And then verse 23 through 31, the rest of this psalm is absolutely amazing. And I want to read what it says. And I'm going to go back to verse 22 and read from there. It says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise and the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Wow. Okay. I was reading the wrong spot. You're probably thinking, what in the world is going on with you? Hey, guess what? It's scripture. Praise God, right? You were just going to keep letting me read. Like, yes, praise God. This is great. But here's what I want us to look at in Psalm 22. All of the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who will go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And this is my favorite part of 22. Listen to this. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. David is saying that at the end of all of his suffering, he has reason to praise. God has never left his side. God has never turned his back on him. And God has delivered him. God has done it. 
everything that happened in that tragic day, all the death that we see on the cross, the blood pouring out, the body that was broken and bleeding and shed blood all over the place, the, the body that was open for people to see, everything that happened on that cross. It's a tragedy, but you know what? God took that tragedy and he flipped it on its head and he used it for good. He has done it. And so here's where I want us to land this morning, I think. Do you ever feel like David? Do you ever feel like you're David, like you are just in the midst of suffering and there's just nothing that can be done? You know, you're crying out to God and it just feels like he doesn't hear you that you're crying out and you're looking for just God to answer you, to hear you, and it just doesn't seem like he is. Do you ever feel like David, like you are there and, and you're going through the suffering and God just can't possibly understand what it is you're going through? Maybe you can. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you are here this morning and you are going through a season of suffering. Maybe it is your marriage that is suffering right now. Maybe you are just not connecting with your spouse and you feel like no matter how hard you try, there's just something there and you feel like your relationship is suffering. And maybe it's not even a marriage relationship. Maybe it's a relationship with a coworker. Maybe it's a relationship with another family member or a friend and you just don't feel like you are on the same page and you're fighting and you're clashing and you feel like it is suffering. Maybe you are here this morning and you feel like you're suffering and you're suffering with your health and you are walking through a season where it just feels like no matter what you do, it's bad news after bad news after bad news and, and you just feel like, God, where in the world are you? I'm crying out for you. I'm going through this, this horrible thing and I feel so alone. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like, man, God can't possibly understand what I'm going through. Work is hard. Life is hard. Relationships are hard. I'm watching my family make horrible decisions over and over and over again. And it just feels like I'm crying out and nobody is answering. Well, here's the thing I want us to remember is that we serve a God who understands our suffering. We have a God who understands everything that we are going through, those trials and those pains you're experiencing, God understands. God knows your trials, your pains, your difficulties. He's understood those things. He knows what you are going through. This past Wednesday, Cody talked to the teens upstairs about the temptation that Christ went through. And we know that Jesus can understand our, our struggle with temptation because Jesus went through temptation. Well, let me tell you this. We also know that God understands suffering because his son experienced suffering. 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. 
who died a horrible death on the cross, a death reserved for the worst of the worst. Crucifixion was for the worst of the worst. It wasn't for the king of kings. It was for the worst of the worst. And yet he went to the cross. He understands our suffering and our pain. And so this morning, here would be what I would tell you And it's easier said than done sometimes, but I hope this encourages you. You have a God who understands your your trials, your pains. The marriage that's on the rocks that feels like it's suffering, turn to God, He understands. To those who are going through a difficulty right now with a family member or a loved one, know this, God knows your pain. If you're struggling with a health issue, understand this. God knows your pain. So turn to Him. Look to Him. Lean on Him. Trust in Him because He understands. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do this morning, which by the way, this is two weeks in a row, Last week, Kay said she saw it teetering and she was just waiting for it. As the worship team comes up this morning, maybe you're here this morning and you just, man, you feel like David. Maybe you're here this morning and you just feel like no matter what you do, God just can't possibly understand. Maybe you're going through something right now and it's, it's just tearing you apart. Maybe this morning what you need to do is you need to turn to him. Maybe this morning you've never given your life to him. Maybe this morning you've been going through these things and you've been walking through it alone. You haven't turned to him. And maybe this morning that's what you need to do because he sent his son for us for this very reason. That cross represents our salvation. That cross represents our hope and eternity. That cross represents a God who cared so much for us that he wanted to see us reconnected with him. That cross represents the love that God has for us. And so this morning, if you've never accepted him, I I pray that you would. Don't walk out of here without giving your life to him. Or maybe this morning you've been crying out and you feel like maybe God hasn't been hearing you. But let me tell you, he has heard you. He is with you. He is walking beside you. Maybe this morning what you need to do is just reconnect with him. In prayer, where you're sitting this morning, if you if you want to pray with somebody, I'd love to pray with you. Man, we serve a God who understands our suffering. And so this morning, if you need to reconnect with God this morning, if you need to give your life to Him, I pray that you would, as we stand and we sing.